Hello again, Boone Army. Thanks for joining me for episode 24 of my podcast. If you're new to Storytime with Boone, it's basically me telling stories from my 30-odd years in the music industry and uh, some tales from my life in general. This week, I'll tell you about a couple of memorable moments. One where I shared a ride in a lift with a massive rock star. Uh, dressed only in his budgie smugglers and the time when another massive rock star got bollocked naked in front of me during a, a live radio interview I'll tell you about how I uh, got to film Adele at extremely close range for 20 minutes or so just before she became the superstar that she is today and I'll tell you what became of that priceless piece of footage I'll also tell you about the time when another absolute megastar of modern music passed out in the Inspirals dressing room after a very messy night in New York and I came to write one of the first songs I ever wrote for the Inspiral Carpets a track called Butterfly the unsigned upcoming band that you're going to hear at the end of this episode are a London-based three-piece band called Sky Between Leaves with a great track called OBE or Out of Body Experience. You're going to love that. Thanks again for downloading and subscribing and thanks to those of you who've left feedback recently on the iTunes comments page. Very much appreciated. And as always, big thanks to Distorted Productions for helping me to get Storytime with Boone out to you. Check out the Spotify playlist which accompanies every episode of Storytime if you want to hear more songs relating to the stories I'm going to be telling you or complete versions of the tracks that you'll hear between the stories check out Spotify okay let's do it story time with Boone subscribe now on iTunes I was in a hotel once in uh, in LA the Inspirals were on a tour of the USA and like a lot of the hotels in that part of the world they had um, a swimming pool on the roof with a bar and that and I was on my way up there to meet the lads they, were all, they said we'll meet you in the rooftop bar or whatever so I went left on my way up there got the morning's newspapers under my arm and that and the lift stopped a couple of floors higher up and a bloke gets in with the tightest pair of budgie smugglers I've ever seen in my life. They're, they're too small for him. And I'm looking, thinking he, he shouldn't be doing that. And I, I didn't know where to look. I didn't know where to look, but, but at the same time, I couldn't stop looking, thinking, look at stay to this here. Look at stay. I remember thinking, that's some budgie, that. Anyway, but eventually I looked at his face, right, and it was only Iron Maiden frontman Bruce Dickinson in his skimpy little swimming trunks, right? And I said, I said, hey, you're Bruce Dickinson, aren't you? And he said, yeah, that's right. And I said, I'm in, in Spiral Carpets. And he said, oh, great to meet you. And all that. He said, I like your music. And we got to hang out. We got to hang out on roof with him uh, in his little shorts. I was fully clothed. I had long jeans. And I don't do swimming that. I'm not that good at swimming. And I don't look good in trunks. Probably had my coat on as well, maybe. Fully clothed. And Bruce is there in his little budgie smugglers. Did you ever tell about a time when... Um, Richard Ashcroft stripped off in front of me. He came to see me once at a radio station I was working at and he had his wife with him. It was about 7.30 in the evening, live radio show. And I think he'd been drinking a bit throughout the day and that. And Kate was in a bit of a mood with him. I don't think they'll mind me telling this story. So we're live on air, chatting about his forthcoming gigs that he was doing. And while we're talking, he started telling Kate how much he loved her. I think she'd had a bit of a go at him because he, you know, he was a bit drunk and that. And then she started ignoring him. So he was trying to get her attention and he started saying, I love you, Kate, I love you. And, and to get her attention, he started taking his clothes off, right, seriously. So at first his shirt comes off and he throws it at her and she's ignoring him. Then shoes are off and that. And she carries on ignoring him. Like, Kate, Kate, I love you. You know I do? Look at me, look at me. Socks come off, throws them at her across the studio. And I'm thinking, this is right funny, this, but wife's not happy. <laughs> she look at her. Kecks come off. And I'm thinking... Flipping out, man. He means business here. This way, he's going for it, and it goes on. Look at me, Kate. Look at me, Kate. And eventually, undercrackers are off. They're thrown aside as well across the studio. And he, he's there, tackle out the lot. Richard Ashcroft 
completely naked, one of the country's greatest frontmen of all time. And I'm not saying, I'm not going to give anything, I'm not saying he's well endowed or out like that, but you know that song of his, Lucky Man? Well, he is, and, and she's lucky as well. <laughs> but I'm a lucky man With fire in my hands Happiness, something in my own place I'm steady naked, smiling I feel no disgrace With who I am Christmas 2010 my wife bought me a new camera, right? A real beautiful little camera, pocket size, so nothing too flashy, but a couple of hundred notes, whatever. But like a lot of cameras these days, you could film on it as well, like in uh, HD quality, like really brilliant digital quality films and that. And uh, so January, about the second week in January, we got news that Adele was coming to the radio station that I used to work at, XFM, right? She was going to come in. I was going to do an interview with her and she was going to do a session for like 15 or so listeners a proper intimate lunchtime weekday session and I was dead chuffed because at that point she wasn't massive news I mean she'd had Rolling in the Deep had just come out she wasn't the household name that she became a matter of weeks later when she did the Brit Awards which was a phenomenal performance of someone like you that she did it absolutely changed her career and sent her stratospheric you know what I mean so we get we get word that Adele's coming to see us at the station so I'm thinking, I'll tell you what, I'll take my camera in, my new camera that wife bought me, get some good shots today, maybe do a bit of filming with Adele and that. So she comes in, and I did a lovely little interview with her. She sat, she sat with me, she had comfy clothes on, no makeup, right, proper down to her. She even brought a dog with her. She had a dog with her. A dog was, like, running around in the studio while we were doing this interview and that. And it was one of my favourite interviews ever because that... that down-to-earthness that Adele is still famous for. It was the, you know, that, that dirty laugh that she's got. And we, we did the interview, took her out to the performance area, which is in a different part of the, the building. And as I said, 15 or so, maybe 20 maximum, including staff, sat around her and she performed, sat on a stool, the guy playing piano next to her. And she started by telling a story about how on New Year's Eve she'd got so drunk that she'd fallen into a ditch full of manure and all that. So I'm sat on the floor at the side of Adele, about eight foot away. And I filmed the entire performance on this new camera in one shot. A wanna, as my film student friend James calls it. I did a wanna. I did a wanna. <laughs> so I was, I was zooming in on her face and then zooming out. Dead, dead gone. I'm good with camera, me. None of this, you know, jerking about. Proper steady cam sort of business. And I'm zooming in on her hands. She was doing all that with her hands, you know, like that. I don't know what they call it. Whitney Houston used to do it, you know, wafting about and that. And I was zooming in on her, on her fingers. I'm just thinking, this is iconic cinematography, this. It's beautiful. I, I actually thought, I remember thinking, this could be my pension plan, this film. If she gets as big as we all think she's going to be, this could pay my mortgage off and that. So at the end, she did like four or five songs, loads of chit-chat in between. I filmed a lot, as I said, in one shot. And at the end, I stood up, switched my camera off, said goodbye to the crowd, said goodbye to Adele, you know, and all that, and, and got on with it. We got on with the rest of my day. Got home that night, said to wife, yeah, look at this, come here, watch this. Gets my new camera, switches it on like that. And I'm like, where is it, where is it, where is it? And wife's like, what's up? And I said, Adele, there's no Adele, she's gone, Adele's gone. She says, what do you mean Adele's gone? I said, Adele, I filmed I, I filmed a lot in here and it's gone, there's nothing in it. And what had happened, I'd switched the camera off so quick at the end of the session that I didn't give it a chance to save the, the, the image to the memory card. It was like a 17 minute, 20 minute performance or something. So it just didn't, it's not there. And I'm just, I'm gutted. To this day, I'm gutted because it'd be worth a packet. I was sat next to her like that film, you see up her nostrils and everything. 
<laughs> Seriously though, I once asked Paul Weller if there was one song by another artist that he wished he'd written himself and without any hesitation whatsoever, he just said, Adele, Chasing Pavements. In late 1989, the Inspiral Carpets signed to Mute Records, a brilliant record label based down in London. At the time, Mute was home to bands like Depeche Mode and Erasure. They were the two big ones. But they had other sort of more obscure acts on there as well. One particular band, Einstein's End in Neubart, and they're a German band. Probably the only band I've ever seen who had more power tools on stage than a B&Q sales convention. Rumours at the time went around that the Inspirals had signed to Mute Records for a million quid. And that's because on the day of the signing, the NME sent a journalist along, it was Steve Lamack, I believe, if I remember rightly, and they sent a photographer to record the moment because we were quite a talked about band at the time and we were signing this big deal with an independent label rather than a major label. So it was, it was a bit of a news story. And uh, while we were down there doing all the uh, proceedings, I picked up a, a massive piece of cardboard it was actually a 12-inch record sleeve that I opened out and I drew on the other side of it, on the blank side, I drew a fake million-pound cheque with a marker pen and the picture of us all holding this up, that got published and everybody thought that we'd signed for a million quid. <laughs> and we'd actually, we'd negotiated the money that we got from Mute by starting with a figure of, I think it was like 70 quid a week, which was the basic amount of money that we reckoned we needed for each band member to just get by. So 70 quid each a week, multiply that by five, five members obviously, and then add 20% for our manager, stick on a bit for the tax man. So it's quite a modest sum of money really that we settled for. We were happy, Mute Records were happy, and we got on with it. But the day that we signed that record deal, Dave Garn, frontman of Depeche Mode, he popped into the Mute's office in London to say hello to us and to welcome us to Mute Records. And at that point, Depeche were like, probably the biggest band in the world in terms of contemporary music. They were selling out 60,000 capacity venues, uh, baseball stadiums all over the USA. They were doing like multiple nights in LA at these stadiums. That They were massive in, in every single country on the planet. And they also had a reputation for being the biggest party animals in the world, right? Bigger than Happy Mondays. <laughs> Words like hedonistic and debauch and lock up your daughters, were often tagged alongside the words Depeche and Maud. It's a fact. On this occasion, when we met Dave Garn in Mute Records' office in London, it was on Harrow Road, it was lovely. It was charming, he was enthusiastic, he was eloquent. He was like, welcome to the Mute family, you guys. You're going to love working with the team here. They've helped us immeasurably. We've achieved some great things together. Without them, we'd be nothing. He said, let us know if you need anything from us, lot, if we can be of any assistance here. He was a true ambassador for Mute Records, and on that occasion, it was extremely sober. Now, a few months later, the Inspirals, we did a tour of the USA. We played um, a legendary venue in New York called the Marquee Club, and it was June the 20th, it was a Wednesday night. It was a sellout gig, and we just had a hit in the UK with this out of fields. So we were doing really well in the States as well at this time, and we got a call 
during the afternoon from the Depeche Mode camp saying that they were in the middle of the uh, world violation tour, a massive tour. They're doing. And so we've got a night off. We're in New York. We want to come and see you guys and hang out with our label mates. And we're like, yeah, obviously excited and you know looking forward to hanging out with Depeche Mode and that because we were big fans of theirs as well. We have been right through the, through the 80s. And their album, Violator, at this point, it was in the top 10 of the American Billboard charts, so they were massive in the States as well as in the UK at this point. So we were on stage, we, we'd not met Depeche yet, we didn't even know if they, they were in there. The gig was going well, the crowd were totally loving it. In fact, we probably thought we'd been snubbed, you know what I mean, because we weren't there. We probably thought Iggy Pop might have been in town or something. <laughs> so I, anyway, so they're doing the gig. And the exact moment that Depeche arrived, you could tell right away, because it started like a, a ripple effect at the back of the room, so the people at the back suddenly turned round and it sort of fed forward like a, like a weird sort of Mexican wave. Within seconds, the entire audience had the backs to us. They're all like, hey, guys, look, it's Depeche Mode, guys. Hey, Depeche Mode are in the room. You guys rock. You're awesome. You know, all this started, all this commotion. And we were playing to, like, 500 backs of people's heads all of a sudden, you know what I mean? I think we even finished our set a bit earlier to give the fans more time to, to hang out with Depeche, right? And because no one seemed that bothered about us anymore, after Depeche walked in, that was it. Our gig was pretty much over. So anyway, we came off stage, sat in the dressing room, and about a minute later, the dressing room door comes kicking open. Depeche frontman Dave Garn comes piling in, totally bladdered, falls over the coffee table, flat on his face, mutters some profanity or other, and falls asleep in a puddle of his own vomit on the floor, like, literally. And we're like, is that him? Is that that bloke, <laughs> that same bloke that greeted us at Mute Records the other week? That ambassador. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to the family. Let me know if I can be of any use. He's not going to be any use to anybody in that state, is he? Fucking state of him on the floor. Anyway, so the rest of the Depeche came in into the dressing room, all very apologetic, started cleaning up after Dave and that, trying to wake him up. I remember Martin Gore saying, come on, wake up, Dave. Don't die, man. We're flying to Canada tomorrow. They, they were in the middle of this big tour. This was the night off. And it's lucky that they did wake him up because by the end of that tour... Depeche played to like 1.2 million people and they carried on being the biggest band in the world after we'd woke him up, after we'd woke Dave up, they carried on being the biggest band in the world. And there's a brilliant documentary actually about Depeche Mode made during that tour they were doing. It's called 101 and it's a brilliant insight into how big they were and what was going on in their camp around about time. And every time you hear this piece of music that you're going to hear now, it always reminds me of that night in New York. You can picture it now, one of the greatest frontmen of all time, Dave Garn of Depeche Mode, in the Inspiral's dressing room, face down, unconscious, enjoying some silence. On every episode of Storytime with Boone, I like to uh, pick on a song that I've written sometime over the years and uh, explain how it came about. Today, I'm going to talk about the song Butterfly, an Inspiral Carpets song, also known as Butterfly on a Breeze. It was one of the first songs that I wrote for the Inspiral Carpets to make it onto vinyl. I'd already written tracks like Joe and Whiskey. They'd appeared on uh, some of the early cassette tapes that we were putting out and Theme from Cow, which I'd uh, written for the first Inspiral's EP, Playing Crash. But I wrote the song Butterfly to be sung by two characters. 
which was to be our vocalist, Stephen Holt. So let's call him Mr. Nice, right, in this in this song. And myself, let's call me Mr. Nasty, the part I play in the song, I'm Mr. Nasty. <laughs> so these two characters are conversing throughout the song in a sort of traditional call and response style of um, delivery. And it's a simple song where the two guys are fighting over a girl. And it starts in my mind with a phone call, the first part of the conversation is on the phone. And in the first verse, the first character, Stee, a.k.a. Mr. Nice, he announces on the phone to his friend, me, a.k.a. Mr. Nasty, that he's found a new girlfriend. She just moved in next door to him and he's, he's already fallen for her and he's planning on asking her out and all that kind of stuff. And in verse two, the second character, me, a.k.a. Mr. Nasty, starts saying, I'm coming over, I'm going to try and ask her out before you do, right? <laughs> Proper snake. And he's even intimate marriage this bugger it's, this is only in verse 2 Mr Nasty <laughs> it's intimate marriage he's not even seen her yet and none of this is based on real events by the way or, or actual personal characteristics you know but you get the picture don't you the second character is a bit of a wrong gun, right by verse 3 me aka Mr Nasty I'm knocking on this girl's front door while Steve's shouting at me over the garden fence, right? He's not happy at all. <laughs> He's a bit pissed off. And that verse closes with me and the girl going out for a spin in this posh sports car that she's got. And in the final verse, me, a.k.a. Mr Nasty, I've got the girl, and Steve, Mr Nice, is gutted. And Mr Nasty's totally gloating about it all, really rubbing Mr Nice's nose in it, proper immature. And that's it, really. And from what I can remember, because you're probably thinking, what made you write a song like this? From what I can remember, I just wanted to write a song that was slightly more unconventional than the way you'd normally write. I wanted to keep it garagey. I wanted it to be fun at the same time. But I just thought an unusual approach for you know a song that two people are going to sing. And the original lyrics I wrote for the final verse, this is an interesting little story. If you're a cricket fan, originally I wrote the words, so Steve would have been singing, I'm not a rich guy. And then I'd sing, that's your loss. And then Steve would sing, I've got no cash. And I sung, I've got Dillard Dosh. And on some live versions of it, or some early session tracks, I'm not sure, but you might hear me singing that line. It, it, it did change. At the time, Dilip Dosh, or Dilip Doshi, to give him his proper name, he was a legendary Indian cricketer. So from the late 70s, early 80s, he was a massive uh, name in the world of cricketing, Dilip Doshi. And we used to call him Dilip Dosh. And when I worked in the furniture trade in the, the mill, Guide Bridge, Ashton Underline, did I ever tell you that I used to work in a mill in Ashton Underline? Anyway, Dilip Dosh then. He became a slang term, or Dilip Dosh became a slang term for money. You know, Dosh. So Dilip Dosh would be, you know, have you got have you got any Dilip so I can go and get a bacon butty? Any Dilip Dosh. So when we came to record Butterfly, I thought the Dilip Dosh reference might be a bit too random. You know, so I simplified the lyrics to make it a bit more universally accessible. That's the right phrase, isn't it? So I got rid of the Dilip Dosh and I rewrote it to Steve singing... I'm not a rich guy, and I sing life so hard, and he sings, I've got no cash, I've got a credit card. So gone was Dilip Dosh, and in was credit card, a, a phrase that everybody in the world, most people in the world, <laughs> can relate to. And also with a lot of classic Inspiros tracks, it features my Farfisa organ up front, and, and our trademark garage punk sound, and my backing vocals, actually, this is funny, it always reminds me of the Chipmunks. At the time, I was dead proud of it, he's like multi-tracked and really tight vocal harmonies that I put on, but it reminds me of the Chipmunks now, I know you it, it was recorded by the way out of the Blue Studios in Manchester on Blossom Street and the studios have long since gone but the building's still there, they kept the facade 
and did a lot of uh, renovation on the building behind it. So it's still there. And um, Out of the Blue was also the studio where we recorded our first album, Life. Most of the recording was done there. There's now a convenience store at the point where the entrance was and the studios were up on the first floor. Have you ever looking at it? On the first floor, there's a lot of magical stuff recorded up there, including music by James and Sub Sub. And... Anyway, back to the Inspirals. Butterfly came out in March of 89 to... Great acclaim. I mean, the British music media loved us at the time. John Peel was all over us, and his love for the band was bringing us lots of positive attention. It gave us immeasurable levels of kudos as well. Record labels were starting to fall over themselves to get a deal with us. For personal reasons, Steve left the band soon after the recording of the, the single Butterfly and before it came out, and he did rejoin us, as you probably know, some 23 years later. He's with the band again in the present day. And it feels great as well to be singing Butterfly with him again after all these years, you know, since the 80s, 88, I think, I wrote it. So there you go, that's Butterfly by the Inspiral Carpets. Just a, a simple song in a classic garage style with a bit of a novelty vibe to it. I wonder if Dilip Doshi ever did get name-checked on a record. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should write him into one of my new songs. Dilip Dosh. Dilip Doshi. What you wanna go with me? I'm crying out on my knees. It's really, really bothering me. This is a butterfly on a Like a lot of parents, I've been watching with astonishment, really, the uh, Pokemon Go craze as it sweeps across the globe. It's massive, isn't it? And at first I was a bit cynical about it, but now I'm genuinely starting to see some, some of the positives of it. And the downsides first. Let's look at the downsides. So our little boys, Cassius, who's now six, Hector's nine, Oscar's 12, they've all got the Pokemon bug. And we're having serious trouble getting the mobile phones or devices away from the faces. They're like, they've got the thing right in front of the face. They're probably going to get radiation burns at some point. So yesterday we spent the day at Chester Zoo, right? All these beautiful, exotic and endangered in some cases, these wild animals for us to see and enjoy and learn about. But no, there are, there's a Charmander over here, guys. Charmander, quick, over here, Charmander. Squirtle over here, Squirtle. Squirtle, Oscar Squirtle over here. We've got Squirtle. Nobody's bothered about Tuan, the uh, the male Bornean orangutan, who's probably the single most beautiful animal that I've ever looked into the eyes of. Absolutely gorgeous thing. And I couldn't believe it. So we had, we had a few periods at the zoo yesterday where we had to take the phones off them. We had a phone amnesty. Put all your phones in Dad's bag. Come on. Come on, Cass, give us a phone. Put it in here. So that they could just take him, this amazing stuff that was going on around them. And they did. They loved it. And it's a great experience. Chester Zoo's a great thing. The other downside of Pokemon Go, Mrs. Boom, Charlie... She's now completely lost her iPhone to the little sticky hands of baby Cassius Boone, right? Anyway, the positives. Let's get on to the positives. So where we live in Stockport, we live right on the edge of this really lovely park called Vernon Park. And it was built in the 1850s. It's beautiful. It's always very well kept. Although recent government cutbacks have, have seen some of the beautiful flower beds removed. I'm sure they'll come back in time. Anyway, for the last 15 years or so, we've lived on the edge of this park. We used to live on the other side of it, now we live on this side of it. And we often go there for walks. Sometimes in the course of a week, Charlie will take the kids several times down to the park. And over recent years, the, the vibe in the park, it's always pretty much the same, really. 
a few people walking dogs, a couple of people jogging, small groups of scallies getting up to no good behind the trees and that, and the occasional cricket match on a nice Sunday, there might be a cricket match. But generally, always that feeling that the park is underused or even underappreciated to some extent. So the atmosphere down at the park over the last few weeks, it's completely changed. There's more families down there now. Whenever we visit, people talking to each other, kids running about, meeting other kids, chatting away. And it's all because of Pokemon Go. It's because of Pokemon Go. This morning, Hector, he's nine, he comes charging into our bedroom. Dad, I've got to go out right now. I've got to go out right now, round the block. He said, there's, there's a Pikachu on the street. A Pikachu on the street. And he went and he caught it. He come, come back with this Pikachu. It's quite big news from what I can gather. It's big news getting a Pikachu, isn't it? And grown-ups are playing it too, aren't they? I've seen a lot of grown-ups getting into it. And I've never been one for gaming me, so I've not really been able to understand. You know, and Even when I was younger, games didn't appeal to me. And Pokemon hasn't changed it for me now, even though I know it's phenomenal. It's just not changed my perception of gaming. I've just not, I'm not, not arsed. I don't want to do it. But I'm, I'm happy that my kids are doing it. But I've seen adults enjoying it. And I got talking to one recently, a really nice chap who works at the Thompson's Travel Agency in uh, Trafford Centre. That's not a... That's not me trying to get a free holiday. We've already paid for it. <laughs> we were at the traffic centre. We're in Thompson's. The guy that was looking after us. Lovely bloke. And he, we got talking about Pokemon Go because our boys were there, Pikachu this and Ghibli what that. And, but anyway, he's a big fan of Pokemon Go. And um, I said to him, if you don't mind me asking, what's the appeal for someone your age? Why, why are you into it? And it's always simple. I was one of the original Pokemon kids back in the 90s. I was obsessed with it. I was only a nipper. And he said, I've never stopped loving Pokemon. So to me, Pokemon Go is the best thing that's ever happened for years. So that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It was not just like a load of bored adults thinking, oh, I've got this Pokemon thing. These are the adults that it was their rock and roll, you know, when they were, they were nippers, it was their thing, wasn't it? And I must say, at this moment in time, I can only see positives in the, the old Pokemon Go thing, apart from when you're down at the zoo. <laughs> Incidentally, Chester Zoo, this is a nice link here. They've been holding Pokemon Go evenings where Pokemon go enthusiasts you pay I think it's like five quid each to get in and it's in the evening so it's after closing time all the animals are put away but you can get in there and chase Pokemon characters about as you can in the real world I've heard what I just said as you can in the real world but anyway you get in the zoo and it's after all the animals have been put away as I said and the events have been attracting like thousands of people and all the proceeds go towards helping protect young elephants from a, a deadly disease that's called EEHV. I think it's EEHV. It's a virus that kills young elephants. So all the, all the money from these Pokemon Go evenings is going towards that. So right now, I'm a fan. I mean, ask me again in six months' time, and it might be a different story. At the moment, it seems like a great thing. Okay, that's all for now. It's time for me to do one. Thanks again for downloading this podcast and don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist to go with this episode. It'll be up there waiting for you right now if you want to check it out. Hope you've enjoyed listening again and uh, leave some comments on my iTunes page if you get a moment. Thanks as always to my friends at Distorted Productions for working their magic once again. And check out my other podcast, Set to Go. That's Clint Boone's Set to Go uh, with the number two in it. And that's also available as a free download on iTunes if you're into your new music. I always like to finish each episode of my podcast with a piece of music from an unsigned or upcoming artist. And this week, it's a London-based band called Sky Between Leaves. Three-piece, uh, Brazilian post-punk krautrock band. On guitar and vocals, Tito Cordeiro. 
Breno Balbino plays bass and synths and Juliana Favero on drums and percussion. The band's name apparently comes from something that Jarvis Cocker once said, an anecdote that he told about wearing glasses for the first time and realising that the holes in the trees were actually the sky between the leaves. That's where the band get the name from. Uh, recently they've supported such seminal alternative acts as Robin Guthrie, one-time member of the Cocteau Twins, uh, the Telescopes, Mark Gardner of Ride, ARK and the Wooden Tops of Blue Orchid. Some great bands uh, that have had the pleasure of having Sky Between Leaves opening up for them. Uh, they're on SoundCloud and Facebook as Sky Between Leaves and uh, on Twitter at SB Leaves. That's leaves as in leaves on trees. SB Leaves. The trio is uh, getting ready for the release of their debut EP. It's called Klein Blues, coming out on the 3rd of October. Uh, the track I'm going to play, it's not actually a song, it's an instrumental track. It's the opening track of the EP. It's called OBE, or Out of Body Experience. Enjoy it. The band are Sky Between Leaves. I'll see you soon. Lots of love to you. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. (laughs) 